ready? I was born ready. Welcome to the Advisory Opinions Podcast. This is a good one. This is a good one. Uh, We have just finished recording a discussion of the Supreme Court shadow docket that you will not want to miss. This is a fantastic discussion with the University of Chicago, Professor Will Bode. And I'm just going to tease it like this. The nerd, Supreme Court nerd singularity was achieved in the middle, well, towards the end of the discussion. I'm going to tell you this, uh, listeners, I had trouble following it. (laughs) I had Sarah and Will got into such a discussion, such a a discussion grounded in the minutia of Supreme Court procedure that I I was sitting there. At one point, I I put my head in my hands because my head hurt as I was trying to follow it. That's... So I'm going to tell you this. This is one of the features of this podcast, y'all. You're going to be feature, not a bug. Feature. I said feature. Yeah, you're going to be in the elite of the elite of the elite in the United States of America in understanding Supreme Court procedure after you've listened to this podcast. Is that? Don't you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, I'm not sure that he meant it as a compliment, but at the end, you will hear a Chicago (laughs) law professor. Now, Chicago law is known as sort of the nerdiest of the law schools. A Chicago law professor, so the leader of the nerdiest law school, say that this is the nerdiest hour he has had in a long time. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, this would be like the brigade commander of the nerd brigade saying this, I've yet to see such nerdery. But again, feature, not a bug. Number two, because we had such a good time talking, I'm going to have to apologize. We're going to push a little bit two of our discussions that we promised for today. One is we're going to discuss uh, a request for the Supreme Court to hear a challenge to the all-male military selective service registration, which is a very interesting topic. We're also going to push until the next podcast a discussion of another request of the Supreme Court to determine whether a single use of a racial slur can constitute hostile environment harassment. And this was, I'm looking forward to this discussion because we're going to clear up a lot of stuff that people just don't understand about um, workplace harassment law. But we're substituting in those two things for something better for this podcast and something a lot of readers have asked us about, and that is Justice Thomas's dissent from the denial of cert in the challenge to Pennsylvania election law changes prior to the 2020 election. And we have things to say, Sarah. We do. We have things to say. Do you want to set it up? So this was the, I mean, we talked about this case a few times, the Pennsylvania uh, case where they're alleging that because the Pennsylvania courts changed the mail-in ballot rules to accept mail-in ballots after election day, that that violated what the state legislature had said, and therefore that violated the constitutional guarantee that the elections would be set, the manner of the elections would be set by the state legislature. It went up initially on a, like a, you know, temporary basis. This was sort of the merits stage basis, and the court denied cert. Not really a surprise there. 
because the election was already over, all the contests were over, someone had won. Justice Thomas writes a relatively short dissent. We can put it in the show notes. And the main point of his dissent was about the mootness of the case. Now, election cases and some other cases, but for me, it comes up most often in the context of elections, um, run into mootness all the time because election you know, even if you did it the second the other election was over, you're talking about a two-year period, maybe there would be some election rule that only applies to presidential elections, but that would be relatively rare. So in a federal election, two years, and then once the election is over, your standing with your client would be moot. Well, the likelihood of having a trial, then at the appellate stage, maybe it would have to go back down once, uh, and then getting to the Supreme Court, on the merits with an argument all within two years is nearly impossible. So they have this doctrine called uh, capable of repetition yet evading review, meaning this would just happen every two years with a different candidate and it would repeat itself, but it would keep getting mooted out before it got to the court. And in that case, they say it's not moot. We will still hear the case because it's capable of repetition yet evading review. And the court uh, here didn't, of course, per usual, and we'll talk about this in the shadow docket, didn't say (laughs) why they denied cert on the case. But what Justice Thomas is saying is this should have fit in to the capable of repetition yet evading review because it will happen all the time where a court may change, you know, how long a polling place may be open or how long after they can accept mail-in ballots. And it would always evade review. And yes, some of this happened because it's a pandemic, but it actually happens pretty frequently. And it's not only because of the pandemic. Therefore, if it's really squarely into this doctrine that we have, and we should have taken the case. But that's not what any of the headlines said. Let me just read you (laughs) two of the headlines. Please. From Slate. So Slate, I get it. It's pretty left-wing. This is Mark Joseph Stern, who I think is um, pretty intellectually dishonest when covering the court quite often. And the headline is, Clarence Thomas promotes Trump's voter fraud lies in alarming dissent. Fine. But here's USA Today. Dissent by Justice Thomas in election case draws fire for revisiting baseless Trump fraud claims. I know that mootness isn't sexy to a lot of people, but this was a dissent about whether the case was moot. It was not on the merits at all. And the reason that you know that is because in the USA Today piece, they basically don't quote any of the dissent. And in the Slate piece, here's the quote of the proof of how Justice Thomas believes in all of Trump's baseless voter fraud claims. We are fortunate that many of the cases we have seen alleged only improper rule changes, not fraud. But that observation provides only small comfort. An election free from strong evidence of systemic fraud is not alone sufficient for election confidence. Also important is the assurance that fraud will not go undetected. Again, he's making that argument in the context for why the case shouldn't be moot. Not for whether there was fraud in the election. In fact, in the first sentence, he says that there's not even allegations of fraud here. This is just about rule changes. Ah! And he also says, he also says in the opinion that the rule changes would not have altered the outcome of the election, of the of the presidential election. So he says that repeatedly, I believe, in, in the dissent. So he says, I'm not talking about something that will have changed the outcome of the election. That's very clear. He says that. 
But here's what's really important about this, and here's why he, Justice Thomas is getting a bad rap. He is highlighting a very important legal issue that came up during the election contest period. And that was this issue about what does it mean for the Constitution, Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1, Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2, to give to Congress the, uh, the authority to determine the manner of the state legislature, I'm sorry, <clears throat> Constitution gives to the state legislature the authority to determine the manner of federal elections. And so one of the arguments that uh, the GOP made and Trump campaign made and others made was that a if a state court changes the rules, then that's violating this clause. Or if a secretary of state of a state changes some of the rules, like an absentee ballot deadline or a signature kind of matching requirement, or you name it, or a poll, uh, the, the hours in which polls are open, or location of drop boxes, all of these things that were done, uh, all of these changes made by various state authorities, whether they're Secretary of State, whether they're Supreme Court, a state Supreme Court, does that interfere with the state legislature's authority to determine the manner of federal elections? And there's really sort of a, a bifurcated view of this. And the one that has been the judicial conclusion reached by Trump-nominated judges and the lower courts during these disputes was that, wait a minute, wait a minute, that manner provision does not mean that we're going to step in when there's any sort of deviation from a statutory scheme that we believe as federal judges is impro improper. What that really means is a broad statement that manner means either by popular vote or you're selecting electors by popular vote or you're selecting electors by legislative vote or you're selecting electors by gubernatorial appointment. It's a very broad, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, a statute or a, a constitutional provision that essentially is saying, look, we're just talking about how you choose electors, not the procedures that are within once you once you've determined the manner not those those procedures but just the general manner and this is a there's a, diff, a dispute about this there's a dispute about this as to whether or not know what this really means is that the state leg, legislature has to lay out all of the details of the elections and if it's not going to lay out all of the details of the elections precisely specify who it's delegating those details to and a state court deter, uh, interpreting state law can't depart from that in any way that the federal courts disagree with. That's the key dispute here. And it's a dispute that has to be settled, quite frankly. It has to be settled. And what Justice Thomas is saying is, why not now? Because we know this is just going to keep coming up. It's going to come up every election season so why not settle it now? We can fully brief it. We can fully develop the record rather than settling it on emergency motion practice six weeks, five weeks, four weeks, three weeks or before election or one week, two weeks, three weeks after an election. Settle it now. That's all he's saying. And Alito and Gorsuch wrote their own dissent expressing the same thing. Um, you know, this presents an important and reoccurring constitutional question. But if you can count, that's three. They needed a fourth, and they didn't find one. Uh, that leaves Kavanaugh and Barrett and Gorsuch and Roberts and the other three uh, not voting to hear the case. 
Um, I think that you could say that for exactly the reasons that you saw the headlines about Justice Thomas agreeing with baseless Trump's baseless voter fraud claims is why the court decided that they would wait for the next case that was like this, David. This is Trump distortion. Um, the, uh, interesting. The case involved too many emotions, too many hot feelings, too much politics. Donald Trump still hasn't conceded the election in, you know, some sense of the term. And so they're like, you know what? Sure, we get it. And yes, we do need to take it. We agree with David. But if we take this, it throws the court into this spotlight about Trump's baseless voter claim, voter fraud claims that we don't need to do because the court has no problem being slow to resolve issues. They'll wait two years. They'll wait four years. Right. Right. Now, let's just put a pin in something that you said, Sarah. Let's let's put a pin in something you said. Kavanaugh, Roberts, Barrett. It's we, there's another thing that you said. Thomas joined with Gorsuch and Alito. Yep. Too soon to tell. Is it too soon to tell? It feels. <laughs> it? it feels like it's not. Feels like it's not to you. No, I think. But I'm I think wonder- those lines are set. So I, I'm th- I'm saying it's a three 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 court. Yep. It's a three 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 court that that Justice Barrett might not be the sort of like hardcore originalist revolutionary that perhaps some of the people who voted for her thought she was going to be. What'll make this fascinating is before when you had a 5-4 court, um, you know, there was gamesmanship in terms of taking a case because even if you were in the minority, you had four votes to take a case, but there were lots of cases you wouldn't want to take because you didn't want to make bad law if you knew the five were going to vote the other way. In a 3-3-3 court, I think the, the politics with a little p will be fascinating because each of the three will have its own cases that it wants to resolve. It needs now a vote, though, from another of the two buckets of justices to even hear the case. And then it will need to know where they're getting two votes to win the case. It changes the dynamics of the court wildly, interestingly. And I think that um, we'll just start to see this outline forming for the rest of this term. I think next term is when those politics with a little P are really going to play out. And David, I couldn't be looking forward to anything more than to talk about it with you. (laughs) <laughs> I can't wait. The next big case to see about the alignment issue is, well, yeah, well, one of the big cases that we'll see about the alignment issue is the Fulton case. This is the Fulton v. City of Philadelphia challenging Employment Division v. Smith. And if we end up with a quite narrow ruling in that case, which the oral argument seemed to be screaming was going to happen, then we're going to be, I think, talking more about this 333. But where it smacked me in the face was the South Bay case with with Justice Barrett saying, "Nope, I'm gonna, I'm okay with the ban on singing." Yeah, I'm okay with the ban on singing. I think you're gonna see it uh, most purely in the cert decisions and cert denials mm-hmm. because you're gonna see three dissents, and that means you know that they couldn't get someone from either of the other two justice buckets, mm-hmm. uh, and so that's what we're gonna know about the three, three, three the most. When we then see decisions about the 5-4, you're going to see it play out in those concurrences, those middle concurrences like you did in South Mm -hmm. Bay. 
Uh, and yeah, Fulton's going to be really interesting. I predict that you're going to have those middle concurrences from the middle bucket. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. And it's absolutely exhibit 183. Well, I, have there even been 183 Supreme Court justices? Exhibit no. 183 or whatever that you cannot predict a justice's jurisprudence with specificity. You got to let them be a justice before you know what kind of justice they are. And so placing everything in the basket of I know what I'm going to get out of a Supreme Court nomination is just a fool's errand. It always has been. David, as of October 2020, there have been 115 justices. Interesting. Okay. Well, so it couldn't possibly be Exhibit 183. But if we expand it to the lower courts, then oh, I, yeah. Can, yeah, I, can, <laughs> I can even add to that number. All right. Shall we move on to our fantastic conversation about the shadow docket? I am so excited to introduce you to Professor Will Bode. He... I mean, there's so many reasons that he's on this podcast today, but let me just tick through a few of them. One, undergraduate degree in mathematics. Already, I'm in, you know? Like, that's... My oldest daughter is getting her degree in mathematics right now. She's We're a senior. We're big math fans on this podcast. Yeah, or my really dad is sciences. a math professor. What? Uh, yeah, he was a math professor. He got his PhD in 10 months, but that's all another story. <laughs> uh, Yale Law School, so we'll forgive that. He's a uh, Judge McConnell clerk. That's not Mitch McConnell. That's Michael McConnell, for those who <laughs> don't remember. And uh, clerked for the chief, John Roberts, at the Supreme Court. So we can ask him some SCOTUS clerk questions. We've been getting an uptick of those recently. But he's now at the faculty at Chicago Law School. He and my husband have been doing sort of an academic back and <laughs> forth on qualified immunity. So my husband has a like serious crush on Will Bode and Will Bode comes up <laughs> on our dinner conversations more than is appropriate, I will tell you. But none of that is why he is here today. He is here today because in 2015, he wrote an article in the Chicago, uh, Chicago Unbound called the Supreme Court's Shadow Docket. That was a term nobody had ever heard before. Will Bode created that term. But now it is the hotness, as the kids used to say. <laughs> and just last week, uh, the U.S. House of Representatives had a hearing on the shadow docket. And everyone talks about the shadow docket. There was a symposium at SCOTUS blog on the shadow docket, a term that the court has never used, except the justices now secretly use it too, all because of... <laughs> is that correct? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all because of Will Bode. And so, without further ado, Will Bode, ladies and gentlemen. Fantastic. Now, I have a question for you, Professor Bode. Please. Um, are you familiar with the Lord of the Rings trilogy? Uh, yes. Okay. Books or movies? So, uh, both. Both. Okay. He's a but, math major who went to the University of Chicago and now teaches at Chicago Law. It's mandatory. <laughs> exactly. So... Uh, I, 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 I want to know if you've ever said these words uh, in the land of Mordor where the shadow docket lies. <laughs> uh, no, I'm embarrassed to say I haven't. <laughs> That's horrible. So, all right, Professor, let's start at I the very beginning. <laughs> and you can take credit for that, David. Uh, 
let's start at the very beginning here. When most people think about the Supreme Court, they think about, you know, 30, 40, 100 page opinions coming out, five, four decisions. Walk us through the non-shadow docket, the light docket. Yeah, so the Supreme Court has a very orderly process for the kind of famous cases it hears. It has, it gets requests to hear thousands of cases a year. Uh, out of that, the court picks a handful, 50, 100 of cases to, to listen to, to hear that year. And when it hears a case, that means they they first grant the case. They tell everybody, we're going to decide this case. Then the parties uh, file briefs, and everybody in the world who wants to file a a brief of their own called an amicus brief, uh, sort of coming in as a as a friend of the court or sometimes an enemy of the court, uh, can file one and tell the court what they think. And then once the court's got this pile of briefs, they bring the two lawyers in for oral argument, or for the past year, they've been doing this on the phone, but until pre-COVID, it was it, they come into the courtroom for oral argument and spend an hour getting peppered with questions by the justices. And then after that, the justices would later in the week, go into their private conference room, talk about the case, come to a tentative agreement about who wins and you know who's going to write the opinion and who's going to write the dissent. And then weeks, months later, the court releases one of those 50 or 100 page opinions with tons of footnotes that resolves the case. That's the, that's the, normal, the normal process. It's got like months and months of deliberation, uh, you know, hundreds of pages of briefs and hours of argument. And that's, and there's that's also- sort of how the course. There's also a lot we know about that process. So for instance, for a court, for the court to agree to hear a case, to grant certiorari, we know that it takes four votes. Yes. So four and of the nine. Four of the nine. And then also when they issue that opinion at the end, we know where each of the justices voted. Exactly. So it takes obviously five votes out of nine to write a majority opinion. And everybody is supposed to say, to line up and either say, I joined this opinion or I refuse to join this opinion, and then you almost always write your own opinion. Uh, I dissent. So everybody everybody tells us where they stand on every case. Okay, so this is regular business. The sun is shining on this docket. <laughs> but what lurks in the shadows, Will Bode? <laughs> so besides that, the court, it turns out, does a lot of other stuff, uh, much of which turns out to be quite important. Um, for for sort of technical practitioners, people would often call this the orders list, uh, but it's a whole separate set of stuff the court has to decide, which ranges from, I mean, in a way, the decision whether to whether to, to grant the case is sort of one of those kinds of decisions. That, that doesn't get nearly as much publicity. They don't tell us uh, if they did, decided not to grant. They don't tell us who voted to grant it or why not or anything like that. But most of what's on the sort of, sort of the shadow docket are things like a last-minute request to stay in execution. Uh, an emergency request to set aside some lower court's ruling, especially if lower courts are issuing a nationwide injunction against some federal policy, which is now uh, happens every week. Um, <laughs> or something called a summary reversal, which is when uh, the court thinks a decision is so wrong that they don't need to bother with that whole process we just described. They just they look at the lower court decision, somebody asks them to hear the case, and they say, you know what? We don't even need to hear the case. Like, we can look at this, tell you what's wrong, let's save everybody the trouble and write an opinion and just, you know, get it over with. Those kinds of things the court does uh, with increasing frequency and in increasingly important areas. So we have a we have a term of art for summary reversal here on this uh, podcast, don't we, Sarah? Oh, really? Yes, that's... <laughs> we do. Yeah, that's the gnaw dog doctrine. That's where they just look <laughs> at dog. the... No, gnaw dog, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's about right. 
GVR was getting a little, uh, you know, burdensome to say every time. Uh, so you write this thing in 2015, naming it the shadow docket, talking about why you think, uh, it has been controversial in the past, but why it should become increasingly controversial. What are some of your shadow docket red flags, concerns? So there are a couple of things. One is just that uh, until recently, people weren't paying attention to this at all. So this is a, sort of an area where, you know, if you're a recent Supreme Court clerk or an appellate litigator who's really in the weeds, you might be kind of watching these orders the court is giving. And occasionally I'd like email with my friends who followed the court to say, you know, what is the court doing here? What's going on? But you couldn't find academic coverage. You often couldn't even find press coverage. And when you found press coverage, you seemed to misunderstand what was going on. So one thing I wanted to do was just say, you know, there's a lot going on here. And Somebody ought to write about it. Um, that said, when you start looking at it, uh, some disturbing things are the justices don't tell us often why they're doing what they're doing, and they often don't even tell us who's doing it. So the norm from regular opinions that you know you're either with it or against it, you're either joining the majority opinion or you're telling us why you dissent doesn't apply. So when the court decides to stay in execution or decides not to stay in execution, we don't even know. Like. Was it all of them? Was it close? Who disagreed and why? Um, sometimes There's also get an issue hints. where yeah. we don't actually know how many votes are needed for those summary reversals. Yeah. So there's a very expensive book uh, called Stern and Gressman <laughs> that costs over $1,000 that all serious Supreme Court litigators have to buy that tries to piece together from following all these things, all of the unwritten rules of Supreme Court procedures. Um, and it's like, it's, I mean, it's an incredibly valuable book. Even it is sometimes like, well, it seems to us like these are the rules. And if you want to, if you want to do kind of hardcore practice in the Supreme Court, one of the many things you need to do is buy this like super expensive book put forward by private people trying to figure out what the hell the court is doing. We have it upstairs. You reference it in footnote 66. We will put your piece in our show notes. And uh, I think footnote 66 is really helpful for people to see, like even for the smartest, most in the weeds folks, like there are things that we don't know. Uh, I am confused because you clerked for the chief. So if anyone should know who is not actually a justice on the court, one might think it would be Will Bode. Uh, I'll just say this. I'm using no inside information in writing this piece. There we go. Um, in fact, continue. this is one of those things that when I wrote it, I, a little voice in my head said, is the chief going to be mad at me for writing this? Uh, and I thought probably, but you know, you got to make and him mad once in a while. Was he? Uh, we never talked about it. <laughs> I have had that experience with former bosses and it's best <laughs> just pretend it didn't happen. Yeah. So, so the other thing the court often doesn't do in these cases is write opinions at all. So, you know, in a lot of these cases, the court will, you know, grant a stay sometimes with, you know, major consequences and just literally it won't say why it won't say like what argument it found persuasive. You know, the, it will literally read, you know, the lower court opinion is stayed until further order of this court or something like that. And the litigants, you can now go find the briefs and see what the litigants argued and see they argued four things. And you're like, we don't even know which of these four things the court bought. We don't know who bought it. We don't know. We don't know why. So then when you want to file another one of these stays, you know, first of all, only if you're really sophisticated, do you know anything? If you're really sophisticated, you found this stay hidden on the orders list. You found the brief, so you know what might have been going on in the case. And even then, you have to say, our guess is you granted this thing before for this reason, and our case is kind of like that, so could you do it again? And you have no idea if the justices are reading this and being like, ah, <laughs> they have no idea. This isn't what we did. Yeah. 
Well, you should have listened to us trying to decipher the South Bay Pentecostal Church case uh, a week or so ago, where that was one of the cases where there were more people writing, but at the end of the day, the math didn't actually kind of add up on all of the elements of the ruling. And we're just trying to figure out, wait, hold on, where is everybody exactly here? And it it became, we, we we knew the bottom line. But the, so, so here's my question. Is the reform, what's the reform here? Because it's at some level, what you're talking about is the court responding to the way litigants are litigating. Because there, as you said, there's a lot of, a lot of this is coming up on, on uh, injunction practice. So you have the nationwide injunction of a major federal, pol- of, a, of a executive branch policy races up through the system and then there's kind of an interest in the Supreme Court not necessarily wanting to put the brakes on and say, we're going to do our normal months-long briefing schedule. And, uh, you know, you, there are cases where cert is granted and we don't get a decision for six, seven, eight months on the, you know, on the case. When there is injunction practice, a lot of times time is kind of of the essence. So the the, is your issue with the speed of it, or is your issue much more with sort of the way in which all aspects of it are opaque? Is there a way to do this to do the to respond to injunction practice expeditiously while easing your concerns about the shadow docket? You know, I'm sympathetic to the speed, uh, and, I, and I should say also, I don't. You know, I'm not a court basher at least here. So I, I, there are people <laughs> who use the shadow docket as proof. There's some you know nefarious Something conspiracy, nefarious, right? Yeah, but no, I, look, they're, they're they're working quickly. These cases, they can't deal with them in the way they deal with regular cases. Like the most important thing, and I do think the court has actually gotten better about this in the past five years, is just for the court to be, be careful about this, like to recognize how important of an area of a docket it is, make sure the justices are giving it their full attention. It's obviously hard for us to know, but I, I think there's just evidence that they have been a little bit more, like some of these opinions take longer. They do have more explanations than they used to. So I think that's that's the most important thing. It's just for them to realize this isn't like something you kind of just toss off. I feel uh, like I, since 2015, a, we're getting a lot more uh, opinions and dissents, especially in the orders list than we did when you first wrote this. I think th- I, that's my sense, too, is that more of the justices are aware that if they're not, you know, the people are picking up signals from these things. So if they don't want people to pick up signals from these things, they ought, they ought to say something. Now, I would like it if the court adopted a norm where if they do anything consequential, like anything that changes the status quo, so not like deny something, where they actually change the status right. quo, that then everybody tell everybody tell us where that what they voted, and that the majority have at least some explanation, you know, minimum three sentences for why they're changing the status quo. That would be my those would be my two forms. Okay, but on the individual accountability thing, something you talk about quite a bit in your piece, um, there was sort of this. Uh, tautology that accountability is good because accountability is good in my mind. Whereas I think you could make the argument that the court, in fact, us knowing all of these five, four decisions is what has allowed the court to become more of the political football that it is. And why, for instance, at this congressional hearing that I want to get to a little bit, yes, both the partisan Democratic members and the partisan Republican members both want to know where the justices fall on things because they want to use it for partisan talking points, which is actually bad for the court. And so knowing that the court did something, that they had a majority to do it, 
In fact, that might be better for the long-term stability of the court, trust in the court as an institution, instead of people being able to pick apart where the justices fell and tons of headlines that I'm sure you find frustrating. I certainly find them very, very frustrating, where the headline in the media wants that political argument. And so the headline, you know, I I use the Justice Thomas um, dissent over the Pennsylvania case. You know, Justice Thomas buys voter fraud arguments from Trump. That's (laughs) not at all what Justice Thomas's dissent said, but it fit into a nice political narrative. Um, Now, obviously, if Justice Thomas is going to write a dissent, we're always going to know Justice Thomas wrote a dissent. But that's not good for the court. So I don't know. So, I mean, they, they do it in the majority opinions. And here's here's the thing is that there are courts that proceed in a more kind of like anonymous fashion where things come down per curiam or people are encouraged to suppress their dissents. Uh, and in addition to the fact that like the litigants then don't know what to do and, you know, the rest of us don't know what to do. I actually worry that's worse for the court's legitimacy and behavior. I think one of the few things that really keeps the justices honest is having to put their own name on something and have their inconsistencies judged. So they can't, if somebody complains, the court is being consistent. I don't want them to say, well, you know, yeah, we probably are, but I wasn't really okay with that. It wasn't, it wasn't my doing. Like somebody has to take responsibility for what the court is doing. And we want to be able to say, Justice Thomas, this is one of the things that's most admirable about him is Justice Thomas is always willing to tell us, you know, how he is being consistent over time, even if when he's criticizing the court. And I think that's, that's one of the things that makes Justice Thomas such a powerful force. All right. That's a pretty good argument. <laughs> haters are going to hate. That's like, can't do anything about that. I'm upset about the headlines, Bode. Fix the headlines. <laughs> uh, so we had this hearing uh, in the House and they heard from witnesses, some law professors, some practitioners. Um, Hank Johnson, the, the Democratic member, said, knowing why the justices selected certain cases, how each of them voted, and their reasoning is indispensable to the public's trust in the court's integrity. Sounds like something that you agree with at least most of the way. Um, but then there's the question of, can Congress do anything about it? The constitutionality of legislation in this area? And Steve Vladek, who if you don't follow Steve Vladek on Twitter and you somehow listen to this podcast, you that Venn diagram should be zero. Uh, that Sorry, the, the lack of overlap. It should be just a perfect circle of following Steve Vladek on Twitter and listening to this podcast. Um, Steve so- Vladek is personally responsible for getting me to attend Yale Law School. <gasps> oh, wow. is that right? Yeah. By chasing you away from Texas? <laughs> uh, I was I was, uh, I was, was an admitted student, and I was not impressed with a lot of the things I saw at Admitted Students Weekend, and basically prepared to walk out and just go to Chicago for law school until there was a panel with Steve Vladek on it. And I was sufficiently, I was, I was sufficiently impressed. I was like, well, I got to stay wow. and like talk to this guy. And then, you know, I was hooked. Anyway, wow. Sorry. So he said... <laughs> Uh, even if it might be within Congress's raw constitutional power, I'm not sure it would have the desired results that the court might respond by publicly issuing every shadow docket ruling unanimously, even if there was deep disagreement behind closed doors, that basically would force them further into the shadows. I'm curious what you think about the constitutionality of it and then the prudentiality of it. Yeah. So so I think, first of all, I'll I'll do a reverse. I think Steve's probably right about the prudentiality of it, you know. The court, the court hangs together and the court protects its own prerogatives. So if you said you all have to tell us if you dissent, they might well just caucus, sort of all express their views, and then afterwards say, okay, well, none of us are dissenting, you know, formally. Once we, so I, I don't think there's any point in trying to, trying to make them. I also am not sure it's constitutional. 
Um, so Congress is Congress has a lot of authority over the lower courts because it creates the lower courts under the Constitution. Um, but the Constitution creates the Supreme Court. And if you go through the text of the Constitution, which I don't know if your listeners want to do that, but I do it yes. uh, every day. Yes, they do. <laughs> yes, um, they love it. So if you go through the text of the Constitution, Congress doesn't have as much obvious regulation over power to regulate the Supreme Court's powers. Um, there is a reference in Article 3 to the court having appellate jurisdiction under such regulations as Congress may make. But it's not clear that lets them regulate the actual, like, the court's decisional processes, especially before the court's taken jurisdiction. And then there's something called the Necessary and Proper Clause, which like lets Congress make all laws that are necessary and proper for the other branch's powers. But it's not clear that lets Congress tell another branch what to do. Like that lets Congress do things like give the court a building and the marshals and a whole sort of staff of people who obey the court. But if that power could be used for the for Congress to come in and tell the court how to rule on things or how to behave, it would kind of be a separation of powers problem. So this is actually something I've been trying to write a large article on for longer than I've been working on the shadow docket. Uh, but so far, color me unconvinced. But in theory, so uh, they certainly can affect their jurisdiction. So there was yes. another suggestion that they simply raise the bar by which the court could stay an execution, sorry, could uh, remove a stay for an execution from a lower court. So it would take six votes or something on the Supreme Court if a lower court stayed in execution for the Supreme Court then to remove the stay and let the execution move forward, which is super specific, it seems to me, uh, but still just affecting their jurisdiction, but then it's about votes? Yeah, so also, yeah, not clear in general that the Supreme Court can, sorry, that Congress can tell the Supreme Court how many votes it takes to do something. You know, people occasionally want to say, oh, the court shouldn't be allowed to strike down a law unless they have six votes or seven votes. Not clear they can do that. They could, they could just take the Supreme Court's death penalty jurisdiction away and say, look, mm-hmm. at this point, let's just let the l- lower courts decide when to grant a stay of execution, but we don't need the Supreme Court swooping in in the middle of the night and messing with things. But they might have to they do could it. make the bigger decision, yeah. but not the smaller decision. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's the, the idea. Well, that's the, that's the idea of a court is you can, you set up the court, you decide what cases to give it. Once you give it to the court, you have to trust the court. So the decision to to give jurisdiction to the court, or just like a litigant decision to submit to the jurisdiction of the court, is then then it's out of your hands. You can't sort of like keep your hands on it. Then you don't have a neutral arbiter. Can we switch gears for a minute, please? And uh, uh, talk about I want to talk about um, Amicus briefs and that this process that you're you talked yeah. about earlier. Normal case, you have an avalanche of contributions from interested organizations. And so I'm I'm looking at two cases right now, and, and I just want to get your sense on how valuable is this process really. So you have Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, which is a very important religious liberty case. Employment Division v. Smith is at issue. You know, I don't think it'll actually be at issue, but anyway, we'll we'll find out. And I'm looking at um, the list of briefs filed in this case, and it is immense. I mean, just immense. The number of briefs from various different organizations, both supporting the Catholic charities and opposing Catholic charities. And um, I mean, you know, you can go through brief uh, from American Bar Association, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, Voice for Adoption, uh, local governments, mayors, First Amendment scholars, uh, individuals, 
amicus brief of Lee C. Bollinger, <laughs> um, church state scholars. I mean, all kinds of amicus briefs. Important case, totally understandable. Then you switch over to uh, South Bay United Pentecostal Church v. Newsom. This is an important case. This is going to have be relevant for basically every house of worship in the United States of America in a time of pandemic. So incredibly important. And I'm looking at, looks like on January 25th, 2021, the application for injunctive relief was submitted to Justice Kagan. She asked for a response on January 26th. On January 27th, Americans United for Separation of Church and State um, files a motion for leave to file an amicus brief. And Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty files their own motion on January 29th. And that's it. That is it. So you have this enormously important case that's impacting potentially every house of worship in the United States of America during a pandemic. And there's two, two briefs, two friend of the court briefs. Um, is that something we should be worried about in the sense of is this is the is the is the limited input from other interested organizations something to be concerned about as compared to another very very important case like Fulton v City of Philadelphia so I, i'm of two minds about this so I, I think it's it is a problem first of all that there's not even like a regular procedure for for amiki to get involved in this like you have to be right. sophisticated enough to know that you should just file something and ask the court to hear it um but of course you don't know you know it's hard to track these cases. You don't know when the court's going to decide it. So that's it's just a problem that people who do have useful information don't have a great way to come in and, and make it be known. But the thing is, uh, David, that the vast majority of the amicus briefs in that pile are totally useless. And the court, right. you know, I'm sure the justices read them. I'm sure they're required to read them. But uh, the vast majority of them tell the court justices nothing they don't know already. I think the vast majority of them, the litigants don't even care whether the justices read them. They're filing it because they want to be able to say they filed one and they want to say to their donors that we were part of this Supreme Court case or like which side we were on. And so I, I'm not, it's not shocking that the Supreme Court doesn't think like, oh, you know what we really need is another like giant <laughs> bin of amicus briefs to throw in the trash. Yeah, that, well, that, you know, that's one of the key, que- well, that's a whole different question is how much do these briefs matter? And I think everyone pretty much knew that as a general rule they don't but then every now and then you see something sneaking into an opinion that's coming from an amicus brief and that's sort of like that lighting the candle of hope if you're drafting an amicus brief that (laughs) wait a minute wait a minute one you know like a bolt of lightning every now and then and i will also note for the record that you're of course not speaking about the amicus briefs i wrote in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case or NIFLA, uh, the NIFLA uh, uh, California Crisis Pregnancy Center case, those were devoured by the justices. I believe they're framed in their offices. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm speaking of my own amicus briefs, which I think have a perfect <laughs> no. track record of always leading to loss. <laughs> um, no, I think you're right. The part of the problem is you, you don't know what you don't know. So, right. but uh, so that's a problem. And ironically, actually, in the, in the Shatterdaka cases, there's probably more the court doesn't know. So, yeah, on the margins, yeah. if they could get 10 of the amicus briefs from Fulton moved over to, you know, have 10 of those people spend a little bit more time on South Bay, just like the court would love to get a couple more amicus briefs in like technical civil procedure cases or habeas corpus cases, and maybe fewer in the cases that everybody's talking about. So one more I, question. Oh, yeah, go. Yeah, one more question real fast. Does this mean, oh, just sort of 
talking tactics, like if you're somebody who is on top of this shadow, this, this shadow docket trend, does this mean that one of the things that you might want to be doing is making a habit of lining up some of the heavy hitter, high reputation litigants to file these injunction motions on your behalf? Or if you are somebody who is, you're, you're, you have a, a real interest in the issue, like let's say your, your Beckett Fund or your Alliance Defending Freedom, that you should be absolutely prowling the docket for these injunction motions, ready to pounce with comprehensive amicus briefs to sort of have a disproportionate impact behind, you know, a, a disproportionate persuasive impact. Yes, no, exactly. And I think, I think that's, I think they, I think they're doing that. I mean, I think if you were, if you were at one of these organizations who have a top flight Supreme Court litigator, that's one of the things they know how to do that, you know, mere mortals, uh, maybe don't. <laughs> and I, I guess that gets to the issue is this then creates a process that's so much more opaque, opaque to mere mortals. Uh, indeed, indeed. Yeah. Oh, come on, guys. This whole thing is opaque long before you get to the shadow docket. Remember <laughs> more the opaque, more opaque book? Speaking of which, I do want to talk about things that are uh, still unclear even after you buy the $1,000 book. So listeners already know that Scott and I have a very romantic relationship where we spend entire nights, this is not a joke, with a bottle of wine next to the fire and that book on Supreme Court practice. As we try to decipher, sort of, Will Will is like like turning red. He is so embarrassed for me um, and laughing. Um, jealous, jealous. Just so jealous of this marriage. So, uh, because there are some things that you simply cannot determine. So, we talked about your footnote 66. I want to walk through the math because if you've made it this far, listeners, you are with us in the nerd cul-de-sac that I'm about to go down. All right, so you know there are nine justices. In order to grant cert, (laughs) so we're not going to deal with the eight justice courts when they happen. We're talking about a nine justice regular court. All right, it takes four justices to grant cert. Now, in this case on the shadow docket, where we're talking about summary reversals, what you would have is uh, a situation, as you note in, in your footnote, if all nine justices voted to grant cert, you could have a situation where five justices cannot do the summary reversal if four justices want full argument, because then it makes it really unclear and messy. If four justices, the number it takes to grant cert and have full argument, want full argument, you could have gamesmanship where the other five then basically vote to grant cert, but then vote to do the summary reversal in order to prevent those four justices from getting their way in hearing the case. Therefore, we have to assume it takes six justices. Maybe. Right. This is good. So this is all right. So there are two rules <laughs> that we they were pretty sure are our rules. One is that it takes five justices to decide a case. It's a majority right. of a majority of nine. Right. And the other is the special thing we already talked about, the rule of four. It only takes four justices to grant cert. And this was actually like one of the things that Chief Justice Taft promised Congress would be a hard and fast rule of the court back when he got them to invent cert. So he was like, you're worried we're not going to take enough cases, but I promise we'll take cases that aren't by a majority. We'll take cases with only four. So we have the rule of four and we have the rule of five. And the problem is what happens if, yeah, exactly, four people want to hear a case uh, and then the other five say, oh, this is a waste of time. Let's not bother to hear the case. Let's just reverse it. 
Um, so, for instance, I mean, many of these cases are about a lower court granted habeas corpus to somebody. Lower court granted habeas corpus to somebody. The uh, majority of the court suspects that wrong. That's wrong because you're almost never supposed to grant habeas corpus to somebody. And so they say, nah, dog. Then the other four <laughs> say, well, if you want to do this, we want to hear argument. You know, maybe if we hear argument, one of them will persuade you. And the five say, no, we really don't want to hear argument. And I think there sometimes was even like, you could imagine five justices, ju- justices saying, look, we would like to reverse this case. But the last thing we want to do is spend hours of our lives thinking about this case. So honestly, if we had to sit through oral argument in every one of these cases, I don't know if we'd even bother. The four say, exactly. We're going to make you sit through argument in every one of these cases. What we don't know, other than reading uh, the Supreme Court practice book, is which controls, the rule of five or the rule of four? This so comes up justices- also, by the way, real quick, to add to yeah. our confusion in the uh, digs, the dismissed for being improvidently granted. So this is where a case is granted cert, and they're set to hear it, and you have the exact same problem lineup, where if the five are then like, I don't, this was stupid to begin with, I never wanted to hear this case, well, you didn't vote to hear it in the first place, and so you could dig the case. And so we have to assume that to dig, it would always take six votes because you need to get at least one of the people who voted to grant cert in the first place. But the Supreme Court practice book does not answer that question. And that is after about two hours with a bottle of wine. I'm pretty (laughs) sure you can find some cases uh, where the court digs after oral argument over four dissents. Um, we tried to find that and it was a little confusing, I will say. What about Robertson versus United States X Rel Wakana Watson? Oh my goodness. Oh my God. Is he doing this <laughs> off the top of his head? This is why uh, my yeah, husband has a crush on him. Here it is. Uh, dig from 2010 over the descent of Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Scalia, Justice Kennedy, and Justice Sotomayor. But isn't that weird? I mean, that's the rule of four and <laughs> yes. rule in five. Although, so, oh, wait, we did find that one. Here's what we decided. We decided that <laughs> it would turn out, we couldn't know this, but that one of the four who granted cert must uh-huh. have flipped into the five so that you could have five, four, because you could not have a world in which the four who voted to grant cert were just overruled after argument. Well, I'm not so sure. So here's my here's my case. I think... The power of the rule of four, what the rule of four have the right to do is force everybody to sit through oral argument. They have the right to demand briefing and oral argument. Now, at the end of the day, four people can't make the five do anything with the case, including make them decide it. The five don't want to decide it. But the power of four is the power is the procedural power. It's like a filibuster. Ooh, in a way. Interesting. Um, you can and hold debate. Is, yeah. And that if that's right. That would also that would mean that the rule of four has to trump a summary reversal. The power the, the, what the rule of four is is the right to make everybody, is to put the case on the docket and make everybody sit through all argument, but you can't stop them from digging it later. And that's why five okay. can't dispatch the case first. That's, my, so that's takes, my theory. Okay, so it takes six to summary reverse, but it only takes uh, five to dig. Well, it only takes six to summary reverse if the four yes. want to grant cert. Correct. you sometimes correct. have a justice yes. who says, look, I don't want to summarily reverse because I don't want to grant cert at all or something. Right, right, right. Like, Sorry. Yeah. D- to be clear, yes. In the yeah. situation where the four exist. Yeah. But isn't, I mean, I'll just say, isn't this crazy that <laughs> to figure out these like basic rules of how the court functions, <laughs> like how many votes you need to win what, like it takes you, uh, 
your husband, a top flight Supreme Court litigator, a thousand dollar book, a bottle of wine, and you're still not sure if you're right. (laughs) And what's so funny about this, by the way, is, you know, Scott clerked at the court. So for anyone who thinks that Will's being cute here and just not telling us something he already knows, I mean, in theory, I should know this because my husband should know it and doesn't. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, So can I just say that I think... We have achieved in this exact conversation the Supreme Court nerd singularity. You cannot, in a publicly available podcast, like this is the kind of conversation that occurs in like a uh, conference room in Skadden Arps. And, and we've just like let tens of thousands of people hear it. And I can think of... Is is this a is this an argument for law school, Sarah? I don't know to go back to our perennial. Sarah and I have this just perennial yes law school, no law school conversation uh, argument, and I, I just can't decide how this cuts because it was so delightfully conducted that it's sort of for the yes law school, but then it's so obscure and difficult to follow that it's almost the, there's the no law school. I don't know. I don't know, but I do I know. This- this is the litmus test, right? So, so no, you come, you know, people come to law school thinking that being a litigator is going to be about like, I don't know, giving the second coming of Martin Luther King's "I Have a Dream" speech, and like everybody oh will my fall gosh, at their yeah. feet and agree with justice. And no, what litigators do is this kind of thing. They're like, "How many votes does it take?" and "What happened in United States versus Robertson?" <laughs> yeah. How do we understand yeah. that? If you don't want to sit around with a bottle of wine and a thousand dollar book for two hours, if you don't find that to be foreplay, like maybe the law school isn't for <laughs> you. I, you know, I, but you raise a great point because you think of it and television con- contributes to this, that you're going to have those moments where you're going to be, you know, and look, I mean, you do have when you're litigating, you do have some moments like when you've, you've got the closing argument before a jury. That's a moment when you have the killer cross-examination. That's a moment. But it is just a moment. The day-to-day is a phenomenal attention to detail, a ferocious amount of just mind-numbing, tedious work, but where you have to be intensely, intensely focused on it at the same time. You can't just coast through it. And yeah, it really, I mean, that's if those who are listening who are thinking about litigating, yeah, you get some moments. You do. They're there. They're out there. But they're few and far between. Like, I like manicuring footnotes. I like manicuring (laughs) Excel sheets. Yeah. That's relaxing to me. So, Will, uh, we've... uh, I I should just say, my wife is a criminal defense lawyer, so we have a lot of these litigation conversations in my house, too. This is is pretty much like uh, from (laughs) dawn till dusk, uh, what we talk about. (laughs) Maybe this is less a podcast about whether you should go to law school and more a podcast over whether you should marry a lawyer. (laughs) If you're going to go in, go all the way. (laughs) (laughs) So we have some questions from listeners about what it's like to clerk at the court. Do you mind doing some lightning round-ish not uh, clerking at the court questions. Okay. Uh, what's the application process like? Do you have to have clerked at a circuit court first? Uh, yes, pretty much. Yes. Uh, there was a time, I don't know if that's a formal rule, but the justices pretty much only hire people who clerked for a lower court. Maybe once in 20 years, somebody clerked for a state Supreme court or something, but pretty much you clerk for a, a lower court circuit court judge, and then you send your application off to the court. Do politics matter? For instance, would an RBG have hired a young David French to clerk for her? (laughs) 
maybe uh, there have been there have been conservatives, especially uh, who've, who've worked for RBG. I think few of the justices care about like partisan politics themselves. I, I don't even know if they know how their clerks voted. Some of them do care about where you are on sort of jurisprudential questions. Uh, so Justice Thomas does not hire a lot of people who are not originalists. Um, and Justice Sotomayor does not hire a lot of people who are originalists. Um, some of the justices have more methodological diversity in their chambers. But Justice Scalia used to hire opposition an opposition clerk m- through several terms, at least. Yeah, he was. He called him the counter clerk. Although his his description of the <laughs> ideal counter clerk was somebody who was still pretty textualist, but politically liberal, so that they could check his bias and see help him tell whether he was being an honest textualist or not by saying because they would have a different sort of you know, desired outcome. I like you, that. I didn't even know that, Sarah. That's that's yeah. some real value add to this podcast. You just enlighten your co-host. That's fantastic. <laughs> I think you have to have a certain personality on both sides to find that fun, but Justice Scalia <laughs> did, and his clerks did too. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I know a counter clerk, um, and uh, he he very much went into it with the pitch that like I'm going to be the counter clerk, and uh, <laughs> uh, never told the justice that he was a vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> which is impressive, I think. Uh, (laughs) Do you clerk for a specific justice or is there a general pool and each justice picks their favorite from that pool for a year? I know you you clerk for a specific justice. You work in, you work in their chambers. Um, I think, you know, you're paid by the court, but like for all intents and purposes, your justice is your boss. There is a pool. There is something called the cert pool. So when the court is deciding whether to grant uh, various cases, most of the clerks do that collaboratively. There's a whole like court managed process because there are thousands and thousands of these things and it doesn't make sense to duplicate the work in every chambers. But but mostly you, yeah. But there's been a big question when new justices join the court, whether they will join the cert pool and some have opted out, which puts a lot of work on their clerks because now their four clerks have to go through all of those in theory or at least come up with some methodology to not have to go through all of them. I have heard allegations of freeloading. So one option is if you're not in the pool, you don't have to spend your time writing the memos, but you can still read everybody else's memos. So there was a time when there were, there was a time when Justice Stevens and Justice Alito were the two justices not in the pool, which had a virtue of having sort of an ideological check on the pool from the left and the right. So you had somebody kind of like, if, if it ended, you're supposed to write things neutrally as a pool clerk, but if you don't, you knew that Alito or Stevens is checking your work. Um, I don't think that's true anymore, unfortunately. Uh, and then, of course, there's also an issue that people will see sometimes where someone um, clerked for two justices in the same term, which I think can cause some confusion because retired justices uh, can also sort of get some clerks that way. Yeah. So retired justices, I believe, are allocated one clerk. And usually they second that clerk to an active justice because retired justices don't hear any Supreme Court cases. So you depending on what your retired justice is up to, you might help them with uh, special cases they hear in the lower courts or Justice Stevens had his clerks you know, help him with his various uh, his various books he was writing, but you basically get integrated into the chambers of another justice as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, fun fact, we now have a situation where several justices have either died on the court or you know, been very quite old when they left the court. But back in the day, justices would go occasionally hear cases on a circuit court. When I was clerking, we had a Supreme Court justice um, join such a panel. Um, how long is a clerkship and when does it run from and to? Uh, summer to summer. So you come in in the summer when the court's finished with all of its work from the last term. The court sort of 
gears up, grants cases over the course of the, the school year, so to speak, and then lets out in the summer. And so you come in for kind of one round of the court's work. Uh, is it a paid job? Yes. Uh, but is it a livable salary? Uh, yeah, it's paid on the government salary scale. I mean, it doesn't pay like working at a big firm, but... Uh, but you get a bonus if you go to a big firm afterwards that is now, depending on the firm, but if you go to a firm that pays the Supreme Court bonus, the firms sort of have a set that they all match each other. And it's yeah. roughly $400,000 right now. Holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> so you uh, you get paid after your clerkship for that clerkship in a lot of ways, if you choose to go to one of those firms. But a lot of firms, because it's now $400,000, basically have to opt out of paying the going rate. Um, do uh, Supreme Court justices act as mentors to their clerks? Is it more of a distant relationship after you leave? Is it common to stay in touch? Uh, you know, I think it depends on the justice, but certainly the, the chief justice did. Um, and he has, uh, in the pre-COVID times, he has reunions every year and um, he's in touch with, with all his clerks. All right, last one. The justices who disagree with each other, say Thomas and Ginsburg or any other pair you want to think of, do they typically get along personally behind the scenes? I know Ginsburg and Scalia were famously close, but is that the exception? I don't think it's the exception. I mean, you got to remember, these these are like nine people who work together for so many years and really don't have any other peers they can talk to about their work. So <laughs> they they all get along much better than anybody realizes, I think, from the outside. All right. Will Bode. Thank you so much for joining us about the shadow docket and for adopting our gnaw dog doctrine. It means the world to us. <laughs> we expect to see that in future uh, legal law review articles. This is the nerdiest hour I've spent in a very long time. And, I'm very <laughs> and we it. appreciate it. We appreciate it very much. That's coming from thank a Chicago so law professor, folks. So that's pretty <laughs> much as nerdy as it can get. Uh, thank you so much. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Sarah. We need to, I think, do a short debrief Let's on the conversation. It. Short debrief. Okay. Your one main takeaway from our conversation with Professor Bode. He makes a convincing argument about the individual accountability issue, but I'm still deeply concerned about the institutional trust issue and that that's being undermined by, for instance, the headlines we were just talking about uh, with the Justice Thomas dissent, and that a way to uh, avoid that on some of these very quick hot button cases that come up in these emergency stay postures is, uh, yeah, like don't force the justices to take sides on everything and to show that it was the liberal justices versus the conservative justices. Just sometimes let it be the court speaking. Yeah, I I agree with that. I agree with that. And the other takeaway is, I know we had this conversation about amicus briefs, and I know that one, you know, only one out of a hundred might make a difference, but I do think they make a difference in this sense that they give the public a sense of participation, or at least the interested parties and the constituencies that are related to the interested parties. They give you a sense of participation in what is, of course, the least democratic branch, the least participatory branch of the U.S. government, and these. These uh, uh, that build up to a decision. It educates the public. It provides us with a heads up of what's happening. We understand what the arguments are. And if we could, in some of these shadow docket cases, I know it's not always possible because a lot of these things are running up against deadlines. If you could even say the court sends up a signal flare, we're going to be issuing an opinion on this injunction decision. We have 10, I want um, 10 days for amicus briefs. 
you would have people piling in on that. I mean, there would be all kinds of people piling in on that. And it would give us an opportunity to know what's about to happen and to have the public conversation about what's about to happen. And I know, you know, whether or not it affects the outcome, sometimes it might, it might actually, but it affects the sense of participation. I hear you, but um, while that may work in a case like South Bend, the case where I, the cases, the type of cases where I think it would be most impactful are the death penalty cases, because just to back up for a second, in those merit cases where you have, you know, 150 uh, amicus briefs, they're already briefed by some of the best lawyers in the country. There's very few issues that uh, have not been sort of brought out into fuller discussion. And so the amicus briefs often don't offer a lot. Sometimes they can offer um, math, you know, data that someone went through, stuff like that. But rarely do they offer legal arguments that are particularly novel or relevant. Um, In the death penalty cases where it does not necessarily attract the top flight Supreme Court litigators or cases like those, then maybe the amicus briefs would actually be offering interesting legal arguments. But David, here's the problem with your idea. The Supreme Court cases often come in that day and have to be decided by midnight. And so you have the the death penalty clerk, whether you're at the circuit level or, you know, at the Supreme Court, of course, you're the final clerk. Um, You stay there until midnight waiting for petitions. That petition can come in at nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night. And you've got to make sure that your justices um, know about it and can vote on it. If we're talking about two hours, David, no, we're not going to get any amicus yep. briefs in by that point. Now, my my idea doesn't work for those kinds of death penalty cases. No question about it. Um, it does work for South Bay. Yeah. It does. It does work for South Bay. Um, I mean, when I was looking at that calendar, because I was when getting ready for the podcast, I thought, I, I want to just look at the calendar, the docket on South Bay and see how fast all this happened. And I was surprised at how fast it happened. I mean, you had a, the injunction request and from injunction request to decision was a, about a week, yeah, uh, which is super fast. And it's going to um, take at least one day to write a not very good amicus brief. And then you still got to go through and like make sure there aren't type. I mean, it's going to take two days, basically, even if you were moving at the speed of light. I just I think there's some practical issues with it, even if I think that you're right, that it might the process might benefit. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, from my, when, when I'm looking at South Bay, what was the harm in, and so it was almost two weeks. So it was application 25th, response the 26th, um, response requested by the 26th. And that can be your signal flare when the response right. is requested. Yeah, that is the, that is what you're talking about, David. What mm-hmm. you want is them to say response requested. So that way everyone knows that they're looking at this and you can put an amicus. So if anything, like, okay, so that's your example of where they did exactly what you wanted. Yeah, they did what I wanted, but they didn't say, um, you know, they didn't, what I would want is say response requested merits brief deadline by amicus deadline by and make it two weeks, make it two weeks. No, you know? yes. No, I'm for speed on this. I don't know. I mean, when you're talking about this 
pandemic issue that's been dragging on for yeah, but almost it can't just be on pandemic issues. It has to be for these nationwide injunctions that affect, you know, up millions of people's lives potentially on some of these cases where a lower court, a trial court issues a nationwide injunction and the government looks for a stay of the nationwide injunction. No, I don't want that to take two weeks. Hmm. Okay. Agree to disagree, but, um, (laughs) I, I want greater public participation where you don't, where you're not actually someone who's sitting there running a $50 million legal organization who is, um, you know, hovering like a vulture over these few petitions that you know are of interest and are pouncing on it. And you're the only ones who pounce. That That's my issue. But we can resolve that another day. Let's. I wonder if that's going to be on. We have a, a, we have a listener who says that you're correct in our dispute 61% of the time. <laughs> Lowballing it. <laughs> Lowballing it. You're correct. 61% of the time. Ah, yeah. Well, I wonder what, how this dispute will, he'll have to email us, email us and tell us who, who's right on this dispute and how it adjusts the percentages. Um, but until next time we will be back on Monday. We've already got some good stuff to talk about on Monday, had a fascinating oral argument yesterday and a case that we talked about at some length that is truly important, uh, when it comes to police, uh, police violence issues and individual rights. So this is a a really interesting case to talk about and the draft and employer uh, and uh, racial or sexual harassment in the workplace. So lots of stuff to talk about on Monday. And before then, please go subscribe to this podcast, go rate us on Apple Podcasts and check out thedispatch.com. We'll take a quick break to hear from our sponsor today, Aura. Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. She'll love looking back on your childhood memories and seeing what you're up to today. Even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep updating mom's frame with new photos. So it's the gift that keeps on giving. And to be clear, every mom in my life has this frame. Every mom I've ever heard of has this frame. This is my go-to gift. My parents love it. I upload photos all the time. I'm just like bored watching TV at the end of the night. I'll hop on the app and put up the photos from the day. It's really easy. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code advisory at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.